Hey, this is Alan from Praise. So glad that you are checking out this message from our Sunday morning service. We're right in the middle of a series about the Holy Spirit. All we're doing is we're reading about how the Holy Spirit has moved in ages past in order to better understand how he might move today in unique ways where our world might be primed for him to move in our midst. We're calling it the Holy Spirit, rethinking the spirit of our age. Thank you again for checking it out. And I just believe that God's going to move uniquely in your life as a result. God bless. You know, I've, I've really focused my life on uh, communicating the message of Jesus Christ. I want to get better and better as a communicator. I want to, to, to the best of my ability, take deep and important things and try to make them simple uh, to understand. Um, I believe the message of Jesus Christ is the most important message that I can share with anybody. I think it's the most beautiful message that has ever been given to and for humanity. And so that is at the very core of what I believe I've been called to do and I want to do uh, very, very well. Communication is considered to be uh, one of the greatest soft skills that no matter what you are doing can help you. No matter what field you're a part of, whatever it is that um, you believe that is ahead of you in life, There's really two big skills that are considered soft skills that are number one and number two. Some people put one in one, one put one in the other, and that is critical thinking and communication. So no matter what field you plan on going into, learning how to communicate well is a vital part of succeeding in that role. Communication is, if not the most, one of the most important soft skills anybody can have. But communication takes two. It takes the one who gives and it takes the one who hears, right? The one who speaks, the one who hears, the one who writes and the one who sees and reads. So there is, there is two pieces to communication. For me today, my goal is to communicate a, a very deep thing in the most simple way that I possibly can. Um, not sure I can do it, but I'm going to sure try. Because I want to try to explain to you why I am so excited about what I believe God is doing now and will be in in the future doing in this world. And in order to do that, some people think Alan's just got his head stuck in his sand, um, in the sand. I I believe just the opposite, that I am very clear-eyed. And so what I, I need to try to do to you is to communicate something that maybe you've never heard before or maybe you've heard about, but you've never really had somebody walk you through, okay? Um, Really, it comes down to the tagline on this series, the Holy Spirit, rethinking the spirit of our age. I want us to understand what is the spirit of our age. Uh, It is most philosophers and sociologists say, that we are in an age known as postmodernism. Now, probably most of us have heard that phrase or that word before, but maybe again, you've never heard somebody explain what postmodernism is. To understand postmodernism, you first need to understand modernism, right? So if there is a postmodernity, which is the idi of postmodern, 
there must be a modernity, a modern age. And modern age is not talking about just the age of today, but it's talking about, according to, again, sociologists and philosophers, a specific age in the history of Western culture. Okay, I'm losing some of you already, but stick with me as much as you possibly can. Modernity, or the modern age, was, as far as, as people say, typically, somewhere started in the mid-18th century and ran through the middle of the 20th century. Started with the Renaissance and moved through the 1950s. That is the modern world, the modern age. Specifically, this is talking about Western culture, Europe, North America. It was a time known as the age of reason. There was tremendous scientific advancement. Uh, There was, along with that, uh, a certain way of thinking, right? There was uh, a way of understanding who we are and what we're about and what other people are like. And, and so with this scientific advancement came a, a sense, especially in the Western world, of a s- superiority, right? As if um, our intelligence, our advancements, our progress was just going to continue. And others maybe weren't as advanced as us. This is the age of modernity. And there was a general belief that all of that was going to continue to progress and continue to move forward until humanity reached a utopia of sorts. Like we were going to just continue to get better and better and and eventually we would build ourselves up to perfection. This is what's known as humanism. Humanity as an end in itself. Like we are building on ourselves and building on ourselves and we're getting smarter and we're getting better and we keep progressing and everything's great and, and really we're better than many others. And this really led up through the end of the 1800s and into the early 1900s. If you don't know, the early 1900s especially, but late 1800s as well, was an incredibly dark time in the history of the U.S. and the Western culture in general. It was a a dark, racist, evil time. This is the time at which we believed we were progressing to this perfectionist humanity and decided to help the process along a little bit. And so we decided what we needed to do was to remove from our own gene pool those who were the undesirables. The beginning of eugenics. If you want to know where abortion started, it started there. No matter where you stand on that issue, which I hope you stand a certain way, but no matter where you stand, you must recognize everybody knows abortion began with eugenics, removing a certain segment of the population from the population. This was a dark time. I believe one of the most evil presidents we have ever had, and there are others who agree with me, was Woodrow Wilson. He was just plain evil. And the things that he believed, really a lot of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s was reversing policies of Woodrow Wilson. So all of this is building up, and we believe we're getting better, and everything's progressing, and we're working towards this perfect humanity. This is all happening right in the early 1900s. And we think, oh, we're getting better and better, and then along comes World War I. And it turns out that we aren't getting better and better, that the same evil that's always been there is there, and the only thing we're getting better at is more scientific ways to kill each other. World War I. But even still, coming out of World War I, people thought, well, that was just a vestige of the old humanity, right? 
That, that, that was just the last thrashing of the old age. We are still progressing. That's, that's often the things that were being written after we came out of World War I. We'll never do something like that again. And then a decade or so later, along comes World War II. And at that point, you could not deny it anymore. Because Nazi Germany took this idea to the extreme. They epitomized it. You want to talk about eugenics? They did it on a large scale, removing, trying to remove certain genetic code from the gene pool. They believed in the supremacy of the Aryan race, but that did not begin in Germany. It was epitomized in Germany. And this is World War II, and we realized we're not actually getting better. Coming out of that, then everybody was a little shell-shocked. And then on top of that, the atomic age, and we just got better and better. We came to the edge of extinction multiple times at our own hands. And we realized, wait a second, maybe we don't have this thing all figured out. Maybe we aren't supreme, and maybe the way we've been building all this time is maybe not the way we ought to have been building. And so you get to the 1950s, and the 1950s is the beginning of what is known as postmodernism. It's the first time you see that word coined in the end of the 1950s. Postmodernism primarily is, first, a recognition of the fact that the West does not have it all figured out. It's a respect for other cultures, a recognition that other, um, others, global South, global East, have things to add to the conversation as well. But then it continues, and, and you get to this point where um, uh, knowledge and truth are more subjective. That's the words that postmodernism adds in. Truth is subjective. You have your truth. I have my truth. And in general, people thought that that began with postmodernists, but a real postmodernist would tell you they aren't adding that to the conversation. What they are saying is this. All along, people have believed what they said they want to, or have believed what they want to believe. When it comes to postmodernism, all the people are doing is being honest about it. That all along, we've believed what we wanted to believe, but when you get to postmodernism, we just recognize that this is just the way humanity is, that we all just build and do what we want to do. So as part of the move to postmodernism, the way we understand, the way we communicate changes. It used to be, in modernism, propositional communication. Three-point sermons, 1A, 1B, 1C, 2A, 2B, 2C. That was the way you communicated in modernism. In postmodernism, you see a move towards understanding and communicating truth through story, which is more Eastern in how you communicate and how you think. It was re-elevated the ability to tell and communicate through story. But the end result is this. In a moment, we're going to read the Bible. And say a postmodern walks in, which whether you know it or not, at this point, you are at least partly postmodern. It is just the water we're swimming in, right? So, but let's say a true postmodern walks in the door. They will not, no matter what I read, ask the question, is this true? Because it is not for them to decide whether or not the truth of this community is true or not. So a true postmodern would not walk in and say, is this true? They will instead say, what difference does it make to me? So as part of postmodernism, uh, everything begins to splinter. In fact, the rallying cry of postmodernism is deconstruction. 
We take apart those things that have been built before and we look at them and we say, is this something we want to have or not? And in many ways, really, if you think about modernism, you could compare it to the Tower of Babel, right? We built and we built and we built and we thought ourselves God until the whole thing falls apart and everybody goes their own way. This is postmodernism. And sometimes for us, we can look back and we can say and mourn the death of modernism. But we need to recognize that modernism was not kind to Christianity. That in many ways, the age of reason was also the age wherein vast majority of people who were modern said, leave that whole faith thing behind. Because now this is the age of reason. And even in Christianity, we adopted much of that. We, in many ways, were responsible for, in many ways, removing the supernatural from our faith. We, we, we said, okay, so, so maybe, maybe this actually wasn't supernatural. Not all of us, but some of us. This was just a part of how we moved. We moved to propositional understanding of what this all looked like. And, and, and so while modernity was saying, leave all that goofy religion stuff behind as we progress to perfection, um, if I can't see it with my own eyes, it isn't true. That was modernity. Modernity questioned the legitimacy of Scripture, it questioned whether or not the creation story is real. It questioned the miraculous and the spiritual world. It questioned the resurrection. Modernity is what said God is dead. That's where that began. The Gospels say a boy has a demon. Really, that must have been epilepsy. Jesus healed? I doubt it. Jesus was raised from the dead? Definitely not. That was modernity. Modernity removed the supernatural from the human experience. Prior to the 18th century, it was unthinkable to look around at our world and say, there is more to this than what I see. Modernity said, there is nothing but what I see. What I can think through, what I can understand, there is nothing to this world but what I can test and prove. It's kind of like modernity took away the straw, and told Christians, keep building bricks. And so that's modernity. And often when people look back, they think the heyday of Christianity was then. They look back and they say, that's what it was. And so they mourn the loss of modernity. But I think in some ways that's like being in the wilderness. And I get that we're in the wilderness in many ways. Like this makes no sense to us. But at the same time, I think sometimes that's like looking back to Egypt and saying, boy, but we knew what we were eating then, you know? Because in some ways, modernity was not better than post-modernity. And so now, this may all go over your head, and it may not seem important to you, but what I will say is this. This is where we are now. We're in a world where nothing seems to make sense, and everybody goes their own way, where it's not building up into one thing, the prideful, we know best. It's been replaced with a definitely God doesn't know best. <laughs> but this is post-modernity. Everybody is in their own little place, and nobody can question any of it. 
And so if you look around, you're like, what in the world? This makes no sense. Here's what you need to know first. I don't believe this genie is going back in that bottle. First, the digital age has only increased all of the speed on this. Okay? But second, if you look around and it makes no sense to you and you constantly are wondering, why does it seem like there's no universal truth or at least a search for universal truth anymore? And why is everybody tiptoeing around these things, afraid of offending everybody else? Well, the reason why is because it really hurts to step on a Lego. <laughs> and nobody wants to be the one to do it because nobody can question anybody else. This is the water we're swimming in. In so many ways, this is post-modernity. Now enter the Holy Spirit and a post-modern Pentecost. Because in this series, which we are at week eight of, the time has come to turn to the book of Acts. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 1. Last week we read about Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They were made new, new creation like it calls them in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Given a new heart like it talks about in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. And then Jesus tells them, I have even more for you than that. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So Jesus actually quotes John the Baptist here. He's the one who said that. He said, I baptize you with water, but there will come one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The same thing you see this, just as Pastor Dylan was just talking about, that first step of faith, right? That declaration, I have decided to follow Jesus, submersion in water. Jesus promises more than that. He says, I'm going to do that to you in the Holy Spirit right? And what's really interesting, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 actually says that the Holy Spirit at salvation baptizes us into Christ. So the Holy Spirit at salvation baptizes us into Christ. And then at the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ baptizes us into the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Jesus and Jesus baptizes us into the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? And so just perfect, that's what 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you should write that down. That's a great one to memorize and to look at. But Jesus says, hey, hang out in here in Jerusalem for just a little bit. Because when the Father sends the Holy Spirit, I will baptize you in him. 
Okay, so then Jesus ascends to heaven. Then Matthias is, replaces Judas, and everybody has all kinds of opinions about what, what's going on there. But then we get to the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is one of the big three festivals for the Jewish people. There's, there's Passover, Tabernacles, and, and, and Pentecost. And those are the ones wherein the people of the Jewish people are supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. All the other festivals are what they are, but that one and the other two, this is one of the big three are the big ones. Well, Pentecost was specifically as the people were harvesting wheat, Right as they were harvesting those grains, it was the feast of first fruits. It was the response of God's gift to us and us giving back to Him. It was showing gratitude and recognizing in faith that we take a step of giving because He has given to us, which I think is really very interesting. And I'm not entirely sure what that means. That it is here when we would give back that then He gave us the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting, at least to me. That's when this happens. I do know that gratitude and generosity go together. That the more you give, the more grateful you are. And the more grateful you are, the more generous you are. That that's this thing that God has created. And it's just how it works together. And boy, I think that's where we're going to go right after this. But on this day when they were giving back is that's when the Holy Spirit is given to us. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. When we were in Israel, our guide um, kind of, well, made the case that the word house here could be referring to the temple, that they were actually meeting in the temple, which may be true, may not be true. The evidence is kind of like 50-50 that either they were meeting in a real house or they were meeting in the temple, one or the other. It doesn't really make a huge difference which one it is, but later on there's no doubt that they're in the temple. It's the only place that makes sense based on what it says. So somewhere, wherever they are, they're meeting, and there's this loud noise, like sound from heaven, mighty windstorm, fills the house right where they're at. And then it says, then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Wind and fire show up a couple of times in the Old Testament tied to the presence of God. But this is the only time like this in the New Testament. Verse 4, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So while flames and wind from heaven kind of shows up one time, this is something that shows up multiple times. This is something where you see this kind of consistent pattern, at least, as part of the Holy Spirit filling, baptizing them. Then you see this kind of speaking in other languages that's kind of a repeated pattern. And this is why the Assemblies of God says, this must be the first sign. Now, let me tell you, I'm not going to try to prove that to you today. Because I've done that before. And others have done that before. Instead, I think sometimes, especially in the Assemblies, where, where it seems like we always feel like we got to prove that, we don't step back and ask a larger question as to what's happening here and how that fits into what God is doing today. And so sometimes, because we're working so hard to prove that point, which has been proved time and time and time again, we don't ask deeper questions about the implications of what's happening. So I'm not going to prove it to you. Instead, I want to ask deeper questions of the implications here. Let's start 
with the fact that they began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. Verse 5, at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. It's not just that they're speaking different languages, it's that as they are speaking, Others are hearing and hearing the specific language that they know. It is a language that that they are aware of. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a moment where there's like this, this thing that happens that freaks somebody out, and you don't know what's freaking them out, but it freaks you out too. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, So that's what happens here, because some people hear this loud noise, and they come running. But by this point, at, 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 at the point where we get through this story, it's clear that there are thousands of people who are watching what's going on. So this is the point at which you're like, the only place this would fit in Jerusalem is at the temple. So whether they were in a house or whether they started at the temple, doesn't matter. By the point at which this starts happening, now they've either moved to the temple or they've been to the temple right from the beginning. But somebody hears it, somebody who's close, and they come running, and they're freaking out. And then other people are like, well, they're running towards something. And so then they start running too. Maybe somebody hears that noise coming from the temple direction. You're like, okay, something just happened at the temple. I want to see what it's at. Whatever that is, one person freaks out. Others, and and it's a huge gathering, over tens of thousands, probably based on the entire response as it comes. Have you ever been a moment of, like, been a part of something like that? One person freaks out, and then that causes you to freak out, but you don't even know what you're freaking out over? This is a thing. People do this on purpose to other people that they love. In fact, there's a whole, like, you could, if your spouse or loved one is not here today, this is my gift to you. I want to show you a compilation of people who freak out just deliberately to freak out their loved one, okay? My gift to you, use this at your discretion, okay? Compilation. What? What is it? What? Feel free to do that, record it, and share it with me, please, okay? So, love it. But have you ever been a part of something like that? Like, somebody else is freaking out, and you're like, man, there's something going on. I don't know what it is, but I'm freaking out too. This happened to me, and I will never forget it, last year. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was, 
I was, I was at Maranatha, which is a retirement community on Norton, which is just down the road from Hillcrest. And I was leaving, I was visiting somebody or something, and I was pulling out. And as I'm pulling out, there's this weird thing happening where there are people literally running down Norton. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I turn to the right, and there's these police cars just with lights flashing. And I'm like, what is happening? And then I get the first text message, and then another text message. Hey, there was a shooting at Hillcrest High School. Somebody had called in a 911 prank. And, and what's wild about that is I had no idea what was getting, going on. But I'm like, and it wasn't even real. They said there was an active shooter. But like somehow, and it hadn't been released in the news. It just started spreading. And it was this wild thing I'd never seen. I mean, people are flooding down Norton, running full speed down Norton towards Hillcrest. And somebody was up at, at Walmart. I think it was Ashton. It might have been somebody else. And they said the exact same thing happened at Walmart. He's sitting in Walmart at the exact same moment. All of a sudden, people start running through Walmart because somebody else was freaking out. They're like, what is going on here? Turns out it was all just a, a big hoax. But, but even still, I will never forget that moment. It's burned in my brain. But that's kind of what it was like here in Jerusalem in this moment. Some kind of loud noise happens somewhere towards the temple. Somehow they know. And people start streaming, and then other people start streaming, and other people start streaming. And they all end up there right around where the disciples are, and they are speaking in other languages. And it says at first that they're amazed. Um, and it, it, it actually, did I already read verse 5? Yeah. Everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by believers. It says before that they were amazed, or they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And, and that word, the, the native languages, is like our closest language. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, People from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. So the disciples are from Galilee, this kind of like backward, I don't want to call it backward, it was, but it wasn't the main area in, in Judea. I mean, it wasn't even in Judea, it wasn't, but this was not the area. It's, it's kind of like just back there by the sea. Like that's, and, and yet somehow they're able to speak in languages that everybody understands, it says, in their own kind of personal Dialect. Now, here's what's interesting is they all would have spoken, probably, if they're in Jerusalem, either Greek or Aramaic, maybe even, scholars say now, a little bit of Hebrew, right? But the disciples aren't speaking in a language that is that language. It's not that they're speaking in a language that all of them hold in common. Instead, they are somehow speaking in their native language, so all of these specific areas that are called out. I want to get this list again. Here's what it says. The Parthians. The, the Parthians. How many of you um, have been, like, thinking a lot about the Parthians? How many of you know who the Parthians were? Okay. So there's the Romans, and then there's the Parthians. We don't talk much about the Parthians, but if there were two empires in this day, 
That's them, Rome and Parthia. Rome was to the west, Parthia was to the east, squeezed right in the middle is Judea. So when it says the Parthians, it is talking about another empire of the day. I mean, this is the empire which probably held the Roman Empire in check. Now, I've heard that men think a lot about the Roman Empire. How many of you in here thought this week about the Roman Empire, men? So I bet you, if that's the case, women must think about the Parthian Empire a lot. So I thought, let's run an experiment. I'm going to ask some important women in my life what they think or how often they think about the Parthian Empire. And so I, I went ahead and recorded that for you, too. Hey, Liz. Yeah? How often do you think about the Parthian Empire? Exactly never. Hey, Dina. Yeah? How often do you think about the Parthian Empire? The what? Parthian Empire. The Parthian what? Parthian Empire. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Hey, Pastor Nicole. Yeah? How often do you think of the Parthian Empire? Excluding this moment? Yes. Pretty much never. Hey, hey, Pastor Heather. Yeah. How often do you think about the Parthian Empire? I don't really think about the Parthian Empire, but you want to know what I do think of? Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Woo woo! <laughs> no one thinks about the Parthian Empire, but they were a big deal. And what's really interesting here is you see these lists. This is what's really interesting. The Parthian Empire was in the east, what the Roman Empire was in the west. Okay? The Parthian Empire, it says, um, uh, they were, these people are all blah, blah, blah. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and people of Mesopotamia. Those three that come right after the Parthian Empire, Medes, Elamites, and people of Mesopotamia, were the people who had been conquered by Parthia by the Parthian Empire. Then you move to the second part of this list, and these others have been conquered by the Romans. And so you start in the east, the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and you move kind of north, uh, Pontus, the province of Asia, move towards the west, Phrygia, Pamphylia, then down around the Mediterranean, Egypt, areas of Libya, around Cyrene, and then it goes back to Rome, visitors from Rome. So you've got, and then it goes on, it says both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and that goes back towards and then down to the southeast. And so it seems like there's this circle of people with Jerusalem in the center is what it's trying to show. But what's interesting is it starts with the Parthian Empire and then shows those peoples who have been conquered. And then it shows the Roman Empire and the peoples who have been conquered. But what's interesting is the people who were Parthians did not see themselves as Parthians. They saw themselves as Medes. They saw themselves as the people of Mesopotamia, the Elamites. They saw themselves as this. They didn't speak Aramaic as their heart language, okay? The language that they knew most of all, the language that was their language, Aramaic was part from that all part of that on the West, of course, Rome would have spoken Greek and other languages as well. But there was this other language over there. But the language that was closest to their heart would have been the one when it talks about that specific group of people. So the Holy Spirit comes, he's poured out, and they hear them speak 
their heart language. They hear them speak the language that they learned first, the language which is specific to them and to their culture. So it says that they're amazed. And then it says a little later on that they weren't just amazed, that they were amazed and perplexed. That's what it says in verse 12. They were amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about it. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So the Spirit's poured out. Jesus baptizes his disciples in the Holy Spirit, and then they begin to speak in these other languages, but not even the way you and I do. Like, it's a, it's a different thing where others are understanding what they're saying in the language that is specific to them and their own culture. You know, some of the first missionaries, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the early 1900s, late 1800s, that right around that time, they started going out with the expectation that this would be the same. That they went out, and, and, and in some unique cases, it may have worked, but there were very many cases where it didn't work. And they were surprised and shocked and disappointed because what they saw here in Scripture was not the thing that they experienced. But what was so interesting is right from the beginning, that drove Pentecost, Pentecostals to missions. Immediately. When we read this story, we said, this means something for us. And they realized their job was to go to the nations. That's why the Christian Missionary Alliance and the Assemblies of God immediately formed with that as their major focus. It led into missions to to become missionary fellowships with the goal of stepping over borders and getting where people are. Because we get that this experience means something to us. The Spirit is poured out in this way, and that says something important to us. I don't know why, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, we speak in a language that I don't understand. I don't know why God would show this as a sign for being filled with the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit. But He does. And it means something. It means something for us to step back and think about. And many people see this, I'm one of them, as a reversal of the Tower of Babel. That at the Tower of Babel, as the, temp, as the, table, <laughs> as the tower came down, people were scattered because they could not communicate with one another. And here you see, interestingly, where does that happen? In Mesopotamia. And that's where it begins with the table of nations, which ties back into it. There's there's this seems like this connection with the Tower of Babel. But it's not really a reversal of the Tower of Babel, is it? That's not quite what it is. It's not 
a reversal of the Tower of Babel. If it was a reversal of the Tower of Babel, then everybody would have been speaking one language together, which wasn't what happened. Instead of everybody speaking together the same language, what happens here is that everybody hears them in that different language. It's not a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It is a redemption of the Tower of Babel. What I mean by that is, They don't all start speaking Aramaic and Hebrew. Instead, the Spirit gives the disciples the ability to speak these different people's culture and language right where they are at. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit gives them to meet the other person on their ground. It gives the disciples the ability to move across the language and cultural barrier and meet them right where they're at. Okay, let me tell you what the most controversial thing I will say today. The Holy Spirit is universal. He is drawing everyone. He is calling everyone. He is at work in everyone. And there comes a point at which we push him away. This is what Romans 1 talks about, right? Like there's this point at which we refuse and we refuse and we refuse. I'm not getting into that as much as I'm saying that the Holy Spirit is working. And we all know him. He's been in us. That how we have intelligence and the ability to reason is by the Holy Spirit, right? And modernity was all like the age of reason except without the Holy Spirit. We were trying to remove him from it. But still, he is in our intelligence. He is in our creativity. He is in our natural giftings. This is where we have been in this series. And so he is working in everyone. He's a part of people's basic makeup. And then he baptizes the disciples. And he gives them this power and ability to step over the barrier. And to speak to people right where they are at right in the middle of all of their mess and right in the middle of what is at the depths of their soul, their very heart language. So in a world where the tower had fallen, where all was being deconstructed today, the Holy Spirit is still right at home because he helps us to speak. And he helps them to hear. And the same Holy Spirit who moved at Pentecost and helped the disciples to step over barriers that otherwise they could not surmount on their own gives us the power to do the same. Post-modernity is not a problem for the Holy Spirit. In fact, A splintered humanity is fertile ground for him. That's what I see here. I see in this moment that Pentecost is not a thing of the past. In fact, there is maybe no other time when it is more essential for us. Because the Holy Spirit does what we cannot, moves us across barriers that we cannot get over. And he brings us right to people that otherwise we might not be able to understand and gets us on the level that they are at and communicating directly with them. This is why the postmodern world is ripe for Pentecost again. 
And this is why I look forward, even though it feels like we're in the wilderness. And man, you see the mess where everybody's speaking their own little language, right? Everybody's doing their own little thing. And everybody says, don't judge me and I won't judge you. And what I am saying to you is that the Holy Spirit moves us to people just like that and helps us to understand what they're saying in there and speak to them at their very heart language. This is the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you and me. My head is not in the sand. My eyes are clear, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving right now. And he would use you, and he would use me in order to accomplish that. So Peter gets up, and he keeps speaking. Verse 22, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. As you well know, God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Verse 32 God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. Verse 36, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. The message rings loud and clear again today. This promise is to you and to your children and to all of those who are afar off. All of those who are afar off. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to go right to them and reach them right where they are. I know this is a world that is scattered. I know this is a world that doesn't seem to make sense. You would call it what? A a crooked generation? I hate to break it to you, but in modernity, it was still a crooked generation. All the way back in Acts chapter 2, Paul or Peter says, this is a crooked generation. It has been a crooked generation ever since. It is always a crooked generation. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his power. We need his presence because he is the one who bridges that gap. Not a reversal, but a redemption. He is the one who brings us to those that maybe you don't otherwise understand with totally different cultural background than you. Still, you're able to step right into that. Why? Because that's what Pentecost means. Speaking in other tongues. That's what it means. 
is being able to step right into a situation that otherwise you might not understand, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to speak right to their heart. So today what we're going to do is we're just going to take a moment and we're going to worship him. And for the rest of this series, every week, we're going to take time at the end, and we are just going to seek the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in here where I told you right at the beginning that maybe it was fear, maybe it was fear that was holding you back because of previous experiences, and I told you we were going to put that on the shelf, today I want to take it back off. And I want to say to you, we have spent eight weeks now talking about how the Holy Spirit has already been working inside of you. And our God is a good God who gives good gifts. So do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But be brave. And step out and say, God, I want everything you have for me. Not only for my sake, but for my circle. I want you to use me to step across barriers and make a difference where I cannot. To speak in ways that I don't have the ability. To communicate with those that I cannot communicate with on my own. So I'm asking you to be brave. Just be brave. I know there may be fear for you, but say, God, I know you're a good God who gives good gifts. And I trust you. And I'm ready to receive whatever you have for me.